The House and Senate are in recess and will not return until Monday, April 17th. Last week in the House, the House came back on Monday and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 1, the Lower Energy Costs Act. On Wednesday, the House began considering amendments to H.R. 1. Over the course of Wednesday and Thursday, the House considered 14 amendments and agreed to 10 of them. On Thursday, having disposed of the 14 amendments, the House passed H.R. 1, the Lower Energy Costs Act, by a vote of 225 to 204 with four Democrats crossing party lines to vote in favor of the bill, and one Republican, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, voting against it. The House GOP leadership was very excited about the votes of the four Democrats because that allows the GOP leadership to call it a bipartisan bill. And then they were done. Last week in the Senate, the Senate returned on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on S-316, the bill to repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force against Iraq. On Tuesday, the Senate considered amendments to the bill. First up was Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson's Amendment 11, an attempt to force the Biden administration to submit to the Senate for ratification as a treaty any international convention, agreement, or other instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response reached by the World Health Assembly. That failed by a vote of 47 to 49. Then the Senate took up five more amendments, each of which failed. On Wednesday morning, the bill passed by a vote of 66 to 30. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to S-870, the Fire Grants and Safety Act. Then the Senate took up and passed H.J. Res. 27, a CRA resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of the Army, Corps of Engineers, Department of Defense, and the Environmental Protection Agency relating to revised definition of waters of the United States. The vote for the resolution was 53 to 41. Then the Senate took up and passed H.J. Res. 7, a joint resolution declaring terminated the national emergency declared by President Trump on March 13, 2020. That resolution passed by a vote of 68 to 23. Later Wednesday evening, Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley went to the floor of the Senate to seek unanimous consent that the Senate begin work on his S-85, the No TikTok on United States Devices Act. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul rose to object and prevented the Senate from taking up Hawley's bill. We'll talk more about that and other attempts to rein in TikTok in a few moments. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Richard R. Verma to be Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. Then the Senate voted to confirm Laura Taylor Kale to be an Assistant Secretary of Defense. And then they were done. Turns out, A.G. Garland lied to Congress. Just over a month ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland made his first appearance before a committee of the 118th Congress when he testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. While there, he faced rather tough questioning from Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz, who pressed Garland to explain why the Department of Justice hasn't prosecuted any of the hundreds of protesters who broke the law to demonstrate outside the private homes of six Supreme Court justices, despite there being a federal law outlawing such activity while the court is considering a case, lest the demonstrations sway the justices' thinking. Garland responded to Cruz that he was the first attorney general to offer the protection of federal marshals to the justices, but then said that arresting the demonstrators was a decision he left to the marshals. 
His prosecutors couldn't prosecute anyone unless arrests were made, and there were no arrests made because the marshals didn't think there was a need to arrest anyone. The marshals on scene make that determination, he said. Well, first, that's rubbish. Marshals don't decide whether to prosecute. Prosecutors decide whether to prosecute. Second, it turns out that wasn't the truth. Alabama Republican Senator Katie Britt revealed Tuesday at a hearing of the Senate Appropriations Committee that a training package used for the deputy marshals deployed to protect the justices' homes last year contained information showing that the marshals were directed to try not to make arrests. The documents revealed that arrests were not to be a priority. They were actively discouraged from doing so, said Senator Britt. Britt asked Garland at the hearing if he was aware of the training package. He said he was not. She asked him to look into it. Stay tuned. Senate Republicans on the Judiciary Committee are very unhappy that Supreme Court justices were targeted for protests last year, and they're not going to let Garland off the hook on this. Now, back to stopping TikTok. A week ago Thursday, TikTok CEO Shou Zi Chu spent five hours testifying in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. By all accounts, it did not go well. Despite the millions of dollars TikTok has spent on Washington lobbyists, and despite Shu's best efforts, many lawmakers continue to make clear their alarm over national security concerns. Said Washington Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, chairwoman of the committee, in her opening statement, TikTok surveils us all, and the Chinese Communist Party is able to use this as a tool to manipulate America as a whole. We do not trust TikTok will ever embrace American values. Your platform should be banned. Fast forward six days, and Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley went to the Senate floor to push a bill to outlaw TikTok in the United States. That would certainly be one way of handling the national security concerns, just prohibit the act from being legal. There's a hitch with that approach, though. It runs afoul of the Constitution. Specifically, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 3 says, No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. Article 1, Section 10 says no state may enact a bill of attainder either. According to the Library of Congress, a bill of attainder is legislation that imposes punishment on a specific person or group of people without a judicial trial. In other words, a bill of attainder is a piece of legislation that declares a party is guilty of a crime just for being. We don't do that. It undermines the separation of powers, and it undermines the individual's right to a trial by jury. So we don't outlaw people or companies. We outlaw behavior. So that's the first problem with Hawley's bill. It's flat out unconstitutional. The second problem with Hawley's bill, as Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul sees it, is that Hawley's bill is an assault on the free speech guaranteed by the First Amendment, in that TikTok is a social media platform and nothing more. Writing in the Louisville Courier-Journal last week, Paul said, The banning TikTok strategy also comes while the GOP simultaneously complains of liberal U.S. social media companies canceling and censoring conservatives. So without a hint of irony, many of these same conservatives now agitate to ban a platform owned by an international group that includes several American investors. So on the one hand, Republicans complain about censorship, while with the other hand, these same Republicans advocate to censor social media apps that they worry are influenced by the Chinese. 
Speaking on the Senate floor, Paul said, I think we should be wary of those who peddle fear. I think we should be wary of those who use fear to coax Americans to relinquish our liberties, to regulate and limit our First Amendment rights. Every accusation of data gathering that's been attributed to TikTok could also be attributed to domestic big tech companies. In fact, one of the bills they're looking at doing is broad enough that the president will be given the power to designate whatever country he sees fit to be an adversary and whatever company underneath that definition. It would basically be a limitless authority for the president to ban speech. That second bill Senator Paul was describing is the so-called Restrict Act, introduced by Virginia Democrat Senator Mark Warner, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Restrict is an acronym for Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information and Communications Technology. The bill has 25 co-sponsors, of whom 13 are Republicans. We'll talk more about this bill in future Washington reports. The Pentagon pays for abortion. For several weeks now, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has been single-handedly blocking the promotions of 160 military commanders in order to compel Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to reverse a February directive that give members of the armed forces increased access to abortion services, including administrative leave and paying for associated travel costs. Tuberville views this, quite correctly in my view, as taxpayer funding of abortion. He opposes taxpayer funding of abortion and is using his powers as a senator to make Democrats pay a price for what he views as illegal policy behavior. Tuberville isn't the only Republican senator who views the DOD policy as illegal. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who served his country for more than three decades, retiring at the rank of colonel, agrees with Tuberville. I think what they're doing is illegal, he said. I don't think they have the authority to do this. Basically, they're setting a policy to give people leave, to use taxpayer dollars, which I think runs afoul of existing law. Friday, Punchbowl News reported that Tuberville had asked the Government Accounting Office if the Pentagon's abortion access policy is subject to congressional review. Senate Democrats spent the week hammering Tuberville on the floor of the Senate and in press conferences, saying he was threatening national security. Tuberville's response? I'm used to this, said the former Auburn football coach. I stood on the sidelines with thousands of people screaming and yelling at me and throwing beer bottles at me. I've had zero beer bottles thrown at me in the Senate yet. There's no telling how this will end. Tuberville has made clear he wants more than a vote on the policy question. Democrats are digging in. They think the policy question is the right one, and they are concerned that if they give in, it might send a decision, it might send a signal that if you're in the minority party and you oppose a given policy, you can block military confirmations to get what you want. Stay tuned. Now to the debt ceiling. Speaker Kevin McCarthy hasn't met with President Biden to discuss raising the debt ceiling since February 1. That's more than two months ago, and he's getting a bit peeved that Biden doesn't seem to be willing to talk. So on Thursday, McCarthy said House Republicans are prepared to pass their own debt ceiling bill if Biden won't agree to discuss terms with him over raising the nation's debt limit. McCarthy said the House GOP conference is very close to agreement on the issue. Asked to explain what a House GOP debt ceiling bill might look like, McCarthy said it would contain provisions to cut and cap discretionary spending, claw back unspent COVID relief funds, and establish new work requirements for federal benefits. In addition, there would be provisions related to energy and the border crisis. This is the first time McCarthy has said the House could act alone on the debt ceiling. 
Now to entitlement reform. In a classic Friday afternoon episode of Take Out the Trash Day, that is releasing bad news late on a Friday afternoon, so fewer people will see it on the news Friday night or read about it in the newspapers on Saturday morning, the boards of trustees of the Social Security and Medicare Trust Funds released their annual report on the health of the two major entitlement programs. The news was mixed. The Medicare Trust Fund said the report will be solvent until 2031, three years later than projected as recently as last year, while the Social Security Trust Fund will be depleted in 2033, one year earlier than projected last year. If no changes are made to either program, there will not be enough money coming in the front door to maintain 100% payment of scheduled benefits going out the back door. If no changes are made, Social Security will only be able to pay about 77% of its obligations, which is another way of saying we're on track for a 23% cut in Social Security benefits, said Mark Goldwyn, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Lawmakers who insist they won't touch these programs are endorsing a 20% cut to Social Security benefits and major disruptions to health care services. Both trust funds will will be depleted within 10 years, which puts the problem within the 10-year budget window. President Biden released a plan to extend the life of the Medicare program by two decades, largely by increasing taxes. He has not released a plan for extending the lifespan of the Social Security program. Now to the Trump indictment. Last Thursday, a Manhattan grand jury indicted President Trump. According to CNN, the indictment contains more than 30 counts related to business fraud. This is the first time in history that a president or former president has faced criminal charges. The indictment was filed under seal and will not be revealed until Trump is arraigned, which we understand will take place in Manhattan on Tuesday. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi reiterated her ignorance in a tweet she posted a few hours after the news broke, declaring, The grand jury has acted upon the facts and the law. No one is above the law, and everyone has the right to a trial to prove innocence, which is, of course, exactly backwards. In the U.S., one is considered innocent until proven guilty, and the burden is on the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused has committed the crime. Former FBI Director James Comey tweeted, it's been a good day because, as law professor Jonathan Turley said, nothing says ethical leadership like a patently political prosecution. It appears Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has indicted Trump for violations of Section 175 of New York state law for falsifying business records. In this case, to be specific, declaring as legal expenses the $130,000 paid to Stormy Daniels to buy her silence when she threatened to go public in the midst of a presidential campaign with a claim that she had had an extramarital affair with Trump 10 years earlier. Falsifying a business record in New York is a misdemeanor, and it has a statute of limitations of two years, so it's too late to charge Trump with that crime. But New York law says you can upgrade that misdemeanor into a felony which also has the advantage of having a longer statute of limitations, if you can prove the crime was committed in conjunction with another crime. So Bragg apparently is trying to tie the falsifying a business record charge to Trump accepting an illegal campaign contribution, thereby turning the falsifying a business record 
into a felony. Here's the problem with that. The $130,000 hush money payoff expense can only be considered a campaign expense if it's meant to influence the outcome of an election and it would not have taken place outside the context of the campaign. Neither one of those conditions is necessarily true, and D.A. Bragg will have a very hard time proving either, let alone both. Celebrities and rich people pay people off all the time for reasons that have nothing to do with the campaign. They pay people off because they're embarrassed or they don't want trouble in their marriage or they don't want to suffer harm to their reputation. None of those things have anything to do with the campaign. In fact, this exact question was litigated in 2011 when Democrat John Edwards was charged with multiple campaign finance violations for accepting more than a million dollars from a campaign donor to pay off his mistress during his 2008 campaign for president. The jury found him not guilty of one charge of accepting an illegal donation and deadlocked on five other charges, and the Department of Justice decided not to retry him. Not only was this legal question adjudicated in the Edwards case, this case itself was examined by the Federal Department of Justice years ago. The Robert Mueller-led Russia hoax investigation looked into this avenue as a potentially a potential means of getting Trump, and former FBI Director Mueller decided the case was too weak. And the Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York decided on its own in 2019 to close its investigation of the matter with no recommendation for prosecution. And so did Cyrus Vance Jr., Bragg's predecessor as Manhattan District Attorney. And don't forget, even if you accept as true Daniels' version of the story, which Trump denies, and which Daniels herself denied earlier, Trump in 2016 was not the only candidate for president who paid somebody for something and then falsely labeled that something legal fees. The Hillary Clinton campaign, which paid for the so-called Steele dossier opposition research file on Trump, I'll refer to it as an opposition research file, even though large parts of it appear to have been wholly made up, reported the expense to the Federal Election Commission as a legal expense. So you literally have both presidential campaigns filing false records of expenses in the same election. You're going to charge one of them, but not the other. One of the key witnesses for Bragg's case against Trump is Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer who was convicted and went to prison. Cohen is an admitted liar and won't make the best witness on the stand. This case is so bad that legal commentator and law professor Jonathan Turley wrote of it, although it may be politically popular, the case is legally pathetic. Bragg is struggling to twist state laws to effectively prosecute a federal case long ago rejected by the Justice Department against Trump over his payment of hush money to former stripper Stormy Daniels. In 2018, yes, that is how long this story has been around, I wrote how difficult such a federal case would be under existing election laws. Now, six years later, the same theory may be shoehorned into a state claim. So if the indictment is what we think it is, the legal case against Trump is shaky, to say the least. It's no wonder the Department of Justice walked away from it. Now comes the Manhattan District Attorney determined to prosecute Trump for something, anything. This really does look like a witch hunt. Not surprisingly, the indictment plays as a political plus for Trump in the short term. A Yahoo News YouGov survey fielded after the news of the indictment showed Trump surging to his largest lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a likely 2024 GOP nomination challenger. 
In the most recent previous Yahoo News YouGov survey, fielded two weeks earlier, Trump led DeSantis by eight points at 47 to 39 percent in a two-way race among registered voters who identified as Republican or Republican-leaning independents. As recently as February, DeSantis led Trump in the same poll by 45 to 41 percent. In the new survey, Trump is crushing DeSantis by 26 points at 57 to 31 percent. Far more importantly, in a multi-candidate field, that is the only kind of test that counts, given that there are already more than two candidates contesting the nomination, Trump still has majority support at 52%, while DeSantis drops further to 21%. To put that 31-point lead in context, in the last survey less than two weeks ago, Trump led DeSantis in the multi-candidate field by just 16 points at 44 to 28%. As to public opinion on the indictment, it is, not surprisingly, divided, and divided largely along partisan lines. Asked whether they approve or disapprove of Donald Trump being indicted for falsifying business records to conceal a hush money payment to a porn star, a narrow plurality of 42% said they approve, while 39% said they disapprove, and 19% said they weren't sure. As I said, that split along partisan lines. 69% of Democrats approve while 66% of Republicans disapprove. Among independents, 43% approve, while 37% disapprove. In the general election matchup, there's been no movement since the last poll. The survey shows a dead heat between President Biden and Trump, with Biden leading inside the margin of error at 45 to 43%. Among Democrats, Biden leads by 88 to 4%. Among Republicans, Trump leads by 86 to 6%. Among independents, Biden leads by 44 to 37 percent. Trump's campaign says it raised $4 million in the first 24 hours after the news of the indictment broke, and another million dollars since then. We learned late Sunday afternoon that Trump plans to give a speech from Mar-a-Lago at 8.15 p.m. on Tuesday night upon his return from his arraignment in Manhattan. One final note, anticipating your questions, no, there is no legal or constitutional prohibition on either a person under indictment or a felon running for or serving as president. The Constitution sets out the requirements for a candidate for president, and they are simple. First, the potential candidate must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. Second, the potential candidate must be at least 35 years old. Third, the potential candidate must have been a resident of the United States for at least 14 years. In addition, by dint of the addition of the 22nd Amendment, the candidate must not have been elected president of the United States twice already or have served more than six years in office as president. And while there is no record of a major party candidate running for president while under indictment, that's not to say no serious candidate has ever done it before. In 1920, Socialist Party candidate Eugene V. Debs, who had already run for president four previous times, ran for president for a fifth time from a prison cell. He was incarcerated in a federal penitentiary in Atlanta as the result of his 1918 conviction for violating the Sedition Act, which outlawed public opposition to U.S. involvement in World War I. He won almost a million votes. And that's our Washington Report for this week.